We're looking at Westminster Larger Catechism, question five today. Question five, it's a short question, and um, I'm hoping this will take about half our time, and then I want to leave maybe half the time for an exercise that we're going to do together. So I hope you have your Bibles or can uh, get there on your phone. If my voice is not super easy to hear, just come closer. You can stand right in the spit zone here, um, nice and close. Okay, uh, let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another chance to gather together um, in this new building that you've so graciously brought to us. And we ask that this will be a place where you are glorified, where your people are built up, where Jesus is worshipped and we learn to walk in his ways. Would you use this study now to help us grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, for whose sake we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so the question we're looking at today is simply this. What do the scriptures principally teach, okay? What is the main principal teaching of the scriptures? And the answer is that the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God, and second, what duty God requires of man, okay? So two parts to the teaching of scripture. What man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. This is like the main themes of the Bible. Like if you remember back uh, in a college course or really any course, they start off that first class. They tell you, okay, here are the objectives of this course. These are the main things we want you to take away and learn. That's what this kind of is saying about the whole Bible. What we're to believe about God and what duty God requires of man. Uh, I, I like the idea of thinking of it as what is the melody line of scripture for all the details and historical significance of every part. What, what is supposed to rise to the top that comes into our ears particularly? What's the tune? It's our beliefs about God and the way we are to be behave in light of that. And so the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. We can think of these two parts in um, a number of different categories. Here might be some different ways to frame these two aspects of scripture. We could think of it as our beliefs and our behavior. We could think of it as our doctrine and then our duty. We could think of it as practicing faith and then practicing love. We could think about it in the, in the Dutch word dogmatics and ethics, or what I like, theology, and morality. These are the two big things scripture teaches. And here's what's really interesting about holding this belief. Definitely not everyone believes this, because what this means is that the main approach we take to scripture is what I would call a relevance perspective. Because you see, scripture, it, it doesn't say that scripture primarily teaches the great works that God did in the past. Scripture doesn't primarily teach um, history. It doesn't even say that scripture primarily teaches the story of redemption and the gospel of Christ. Interesting, it doesn't say that that's what scripture primarily teaches. And why doesn't it say this? It's because the primary purpose of scripture is not to merely inform us, right? If scripture was just a historical testimony and witness, then anyone, an unbeliever, a Muslim, could study and analyze this text and come to proper conclusions about what the document actually teaches. Um, I, I, I had a friend, or I have a friend, uh, named Jared, and he 
was very theological, philosophical. He ended up becoming an atheist, but he kept working on his PhD in biblical studies because he just thought the Bible's such an interesting book, just analyzing the historical context and the influence. He loved the Bible, but he didn't believe it, teaching the true truth about God or obligating him. Um, Because scripture does not just inform, what it does is it obligates. Everything scripture teaches carries with it an ought. It just doesn't tell us what is or what has been. It tells us what we ought to believe and how we ought to behave. And why does scripture obligate this way? Because as we saw doctrinally, scripture is from God. It is inspired of God and therefore it carries with it God's authority. And because it carries with it God's authority, that means scripture actually commands us to believe certain things, right? You could read a journal article, a scientific paper, and they can tell you theories with good arguments, but there's no moral force saying you must believe this particular fact, or you must behave this way in light of it. It's guesses at best, but everything scripture says obligates us to either believe something or to behave in some way. And so what is so amazing about confessing this is it means that scripture is always relevant. It's not just a historical analysis. It's a relevant word from God to us today. If you remember, we looked at the significance of both the human and divine author of scripture, right? The human author tells us about the then, but the divine author allows that to also be a word to the church now. The Bible tells us today how to please God and what we should believe about God. It speaks to all times and places. And even though the scripture is wrapped in a historical context, it comes to us in history. But because it testifies of God, we learn of God's unchanging character. And from God's unchanging character comes unchanging moral imperatives. Ones that didn't just apply then, but apply to all times and places. And if we remember back then to question one, what is the chief end of man to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever? The chief end here of scripture is to inform us how to glorify and enjoy, how to glorify God and enjoy him forever, how to believe what God has said about himself, how to act and behave in light of that. So the end goal, the principal use of scripture then is to inform us as to a God-glorifying theology and a God-glorifying morality. Theology and morality, these two main parts of scripture. But that doesn't mean we can just take the biblical text and jump right to its application to our mind and heart. There's often a lot of confusion on what is talked about with a literal reading of scripture. This is going to harken back to what we looked at in interpreting. If you guys remember that reverse triangle, interpreting scripture, Um, it's common for people to trump a literal reading of scripture, but usually what they actually mean is an intuitive reading of scripture. It means I read this verse. What it clearly says to me is this, but what people find to be the intuitively plain reading to them is often wrong because our cultural context, it conditions us, it gives us rose-colored glasses that what might seem like the obvious interpretation to us is not. 
Um, maybe, maybe an example, I don't know how good this is, this just popped in my head, but I remember when I was a teenager, uh, there was a verse in Psalm, I think it's 146, and it, it talked about, it says, let the high praises of God um, be in their mouths and two-edged swords in their hands. And I remember explaining to my friend Ben saying, wow, isn't that cool that the praises of God here are like a two-edged sword in our, in our hand. And as we praise God, it's like we're doing spiritual warfare with the sword. And I remember um, Ben pointing out to me as we actually looked at it, he's like, I actually think that's probably talking about literal swords. This is in that Israelite warrior context. They were to be a praising people, but also a warfaring people under God. But what seems so obvious to me at first, I'm like, this is obviously talking about the praises of God being like a sword. It was totally wrong. And Ben was right. Ben's a very good Old Testament uh, scholar. And um, so what is intuitively right to us is not often right. Okay, so we have to be careful that we don't just springboard off scripture and apply it so quickly that we get it wrong, right? We still, even though it's a relevant word to us today, we have to go back and understand the literal meaning, which is, what did the original author actually intend for this to say, right? That gives us those constraints. But we have to move on from there, from the literal, and what we get from the literal then is the principial. We can analyze the stories that have been told, the commands and examples given, and glean from those eternal, unchanging principles. And when we look at these principles, and as we saw, we can glean principles from redemptive history, but also from systematic uh, understanding of the Bible as a whole, from the principles that arise from the text, okay, the unchanging principles that derive from those local circumstances, then we can apply those to our lives and learn what we should believe and how we should behave. We can move from the local to the universal, or from the historical to the theological. But we always have to start with that work of proper interpretation and context before we move to the abstracted principles. But we want to get to the place where we are being challenged by the Bible, right? The Bible should be challenging us with those obligations of what we should believe and how we should behave. Galatians 5, 6, that nothing counts but faith working by love. These two parts pop up all over the New Testament. The faith beliefs were to hold the loving practice of our lives. Or you can think of faith and works, right? These faith and works are both necessary. They go hand in hand. It's like the body and the soul. Uh, Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So just works, no faith, you can't please God. But then James 2.26 says that faith without works is a dead faith. Right? We need the proper beliefs. We need the proper behaviors. We need to know our doctrine, but also our duties. We need both. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how recently anyone in the small groups, we were looking at Ephesians 2 in our group recently. And that famous passage where it starts off talking about our deadness and sins, and then how God raised us up with Christ and seated us. Uh, but we, off, we, we remarked how we often stop at verse 9, which talks about that we've been saved by grace so that no one can boast. But we often forget that the end of that thought is verse 10, which is that God has prepared good works for us that we should walk in them. And that God, through Paul there, is trying to move us from remembering who we were to now knowing who we are, that we... Not just that we would stop and say, wow, grace is amazing, but that we would say, wow, grace is amazing, so how should I live now to do a life of good works? Our faith should always be pushing us to works.
And before we uh, try to practice this, um, I want us to look at a quote. I found a really good quote this week. I wasn't even looking for it. But um, uh, Herman Bovink, who wrote a big four-volume work on um, beliefs, on dogmatics, and they're just publishing now, he has a three-volume work on what he calls ethics. So he made two voluminous sets on these two great parts of scripture. So he's going to describe for us, and he uses the term dogmatics and ethics for beliefs and behavior. And listen to how he differentiates these two great categories we should be using when looking at scripture, right? It's like two lenses on your glasses, Uh, the dogmatics and ethics. We're always looking at scripture through both. He says this, Dogmatics describes the deeds of God done for, to, and in human beings. Ethics describes what renewed human beings now do on the basis of and in the strength of those divine deeds. In dogmatics, human beings are passive. They receive and believe. In ethics, they are themselves active agents. In the former, that which concerns faith is dealt with. In the latter, that which concerns love, obedience, and good works. Dogmatics sets forth what God is and does for human beings and causes them to know God as their creator, redeemer, and sanctifier. Ethics sets forth what human beings are and do for God now. How with everything they are and have, with intellect and will and all their strength, they devote themselves to God out of gratitude and love. Dogmatics is the system of the knowledge of God. Ethics is that of the service of God. In dogmatics, God descends to us. In ethics, we ascend to God. In dogmatics, he is ours. In ethics, we are his. In dogmatics, God loves us. In ethics, therefore, we love him. These two great principal parts of scripture. Um, Before we move on, any comments or questions on anything so far? Okay, already. Um, Look at those little outlines that got handed out. Most of you should have one. If you don't and you want one, I'll leave it up here. I've kind of broken down these two great views of Scripture, the doctrine and the duty, into a few more categories to help us have a system in our minds for when we read Scripture. And it's hard striking the balance of what is too simplistic and what's too complex, right? If it's too simplistic, only these two categories, we might miss some nuances. But if we multiply categories, we might just get confused and lost. So I have eight things here that I think are helpful categories when we look at Scripture. Subdivided. So if we're thinking of our doctrine, right, that dogmatics, our theology, what theology tells us is two main things. It tells us about God's person, and it tells us about God's works. That is, who God is and what God has done. Remember, like Boving said, it's all about God, God's person and works. And what we learn about God's person is God's nature and his character. God's nature is who he is in and of himself. So this is thinking about things like God as triune, God as omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, all these qualities of God that make him God, his self-existence, his immensity, 
God in and of himself, and then God's character is who is God to us. This is often God called God's communicable attributes, the attributes that we experience. So whether that's his love, his goodness, his faithfulness, that's who God is to us, what we experience of God. Those comprise God's person. And in theology, this is often called the study of theology proper. Theology proper is all about God, his person particularly. And then we have God's works. And when you think about what God has done, there are three primary categories that pop up. God's works of creation, redemption, and sanctification, or I've put here restoration. Same idea. So when we're speaking of God's work of creation, this is actually primarily in scripture attributed to the Father, the Creator. And in doctrine, we call this often the study of anthropology, that is the doctrine of man. When we're studying man, we're studying God's creation. Secondly, redemption, which is most often attributed to Christ. And here we have uh, theological topics like Christology, the study of Christ, soteriology, the study of salvation, and covenant theology. Namely, how has God unfolded this redemptive plan throughout history? Creation, redemption, and then restoration or sanctification. This is primarily looking at the work of the Spirit and God's work in the church. So it's at saying restoration. How on the basis of Christ's death is God now renewing all things? Now in our hearts, but also how will he finally renew and restore all things in the new creation. So this includes pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, and eschatology, the study of the last things. So that's what we're talking about when we're looking at God's works, both under doctrine, God's person and works. But secondly, duty, our behaviors, what are the categories of our behavior that are helpful to look at? And here I propose just what were called historically the three theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. And they actually each map on to the three works of God, which I thought worked out very interestingly. So our faith, faith is our response to God's redemption. We hear the story of what Christ has done, and we apply faith to it, and we believe it. And these three categories are actually what pop up in the catechism itself, right? So I'm I'm expanding this because this is how the catechism organizes itself, right? The first 90 questions are what we're to believe about God up to then 196 is our duty, okay? So that's the organization in the catechism. So when we're thinking about faith, our response to God's redemption, we're talking about the way of salvation. And it can often be summarized as our faith response to say something like the Apostles' Creed, basic doctrine. Secondly, hope, which is our response to God's restoration, to the spirit in us, to the end of all things. And this has historically been tied to the Lord's Prayer. Because prayer is always an expression of hope. Prayer is an expressing of what we hope and wish God to do for us. It's an expression of our confidence of what he will do for us. And so the Lord's Prayer is an example of hope. And so when we're thinking about our response of hope to God, we're thinking about the means of grace. Every time we sit under God's word, we're expressing our hopeful confidence that God changes us by his word. Every time we pray, we're expressing that hope and confidence. And then lastly, love. This is how we respond to God's created world. 
the people around us, the world around us, it's all marked by love. And love is summarized in the law of God, particularly the Ten Commandments. We respond following God's law to know how best to love and to serve in that way. So when we're thinking of our duty, we're thinking of our faith, our hope, and our love. So this would cover theological topics like ethics, morality, practical theology, stuff like that. Okay, uh, you guys following? Um, I know that was a little bit um, detailed, but uh, any, any questions before we look at an example? Okay, alrighty, open your Bibles to James 1. James chapter 1. We're going to try to apply this schema to this chapter of James and see how many of these things we can find.